Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be turning in just a moment. We have been studying the last two weeks and even before that, three weeks on the role of a biblical man or biblical manhood. Now we've been looking at what does it mean to be a biblical or a godly woman. And we've looked at from the very beginning of the scriptures in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and even 3, how did God intend women to be? And we've looked also in Proverbs 31, 10 through uh, 31 on what does this godly woman look like in that context? And we've seen, we'll see it again in this passage in Titus 2, that each time we see God's design is emphasized that the woman's orientation, her focus, her attention is centralized on her role as wife and her role as mother. Now, in other words, her orientation is toward her household. We've seen that this takes different uh, shapes and forms, and even looking at Proverbs 31. Wow, what a woman is that? What an excellent and virtuous woman. Now, we're going to look at that repeated in Titus chapter 2, but I, at, before we end, I want to focus on two, or, or can carefully consider two kind of special situations uh, in relation to this as an identity of being a woman and being one who wants to honor the Lord with her femininity, and that is, what, what's the single woman to do? the one who is unmarried, and what is the childless wife to do in this situation? If a woman's role is predominantly in relation to her husband and her children, what if she has no husband? What if she has no children? We'll consider that as we get to the end. Uh, it's interesting. It's by design, I suppose. This isn't just a cultural argument. Now, we could argue based on the exigencies, the, the uh, situation, the circumstances of life, that it is better, right? Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. They have a good return for their labor. If one falls, how, needs somebody to pick them up. So there's that benefit. There's a benefit of econ economy. There's a benefit of, of uh, you know, caring for one another. There's the benefit of not abandoning or not uh, causing uh, orphans and so forth. But from the beginning, we see that God's design is the woman's role predominantly, primarily, is wife and mother. We saw at the beginning of creation, right, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we saw in, so that's like 4,000 B.C., we saw at the time of Solomon, I think he wrote those, those Proverbs there in chapter 31, around the time, you know, 1,000 or so uh, B.C., then we're moving forward to the first century, A.D., after, you know, the year of the Lord, and to the time of Titus. Uh, Paul and Titus, right after the Lord Jesus Christ went and was ascended into heaven. And so for, what, 4,000 years, this is God's predominant message, and this is the scripture. So we take his scripture at face value and say, this is a good thing. When we come to Titus chapter 2, uh, we see that God is speaking to, or through, uh, well, there you go. God's design for a woman is wife and mother predominantly, not exclusively, and we'll see that in just a moment. He, in Titus what is going on with Titus is that Paul has been released from his second Roman imprisonment, and, or excuse me, he's been released from his first Roman imprisonment, and he's about to be uh, arrested again and, and executed for treason against the state and all these things. But he is roaming around, ministering the word of God in different places, and he put different of his children, you can look at Titus chapter 1 and verse uh, four, it says to Titus, my genuine child according to our common faith. It's not that Paul and Titus were related physically, father-son relationship, no, but in a spiritual sense, Titus was one who was trained up by Paul and, and entrusted with a specific task to do in, in the island uh, nation of Crete, many cities on Crete. And he says in verse five, 
this is what you need to do. There's certain things that I began to do, but Titus, you're going to have to finish them out. And he's giving him instructions on what does it look like to be a godly church? What does it look like to be godly uh, older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. What does this look like? What are these elders, these el- pastors, overseers supposed to be uh, like? We see that in, in uh, chapter 1. But moving into chapter 2 and verse 1, let me just read a few verses. I'm going to look at each of these verses, especially as it pertains to older women and younger women. But he says here in Titus 2 and verse 1, As for you, but as for you, which are proper for sound doctrine. I have to back up just a minute. At the end of chapter 1, he said there are a lot of false teachers around, teaching horrible things and upsetting problems and upsetting whole households and they need to be silenced and they need to be reproved severely. And he says, as for you, in in stark contrast to those false teachers, you speak the things which are proper, that are fitting, that are appropriate to or that balance out sound doctrine. Now, it's not just truth. Truth is very important. He's talking about sound doctrine. But he says the things that are fitting, in other words, the implications of the truth. How ought we to live? How ought we to think? How ought we to have relationships with one another? And so the things that are proper for sound doctrine are conduct or include our conduct, the way that we speak, the way that we carry ourselves around in this world. In other words, our lives reflect the truth of God's word. They should anyway. If our lives do not reflect or or uh, are balancing or appropriate to God's word, then there's a disconnect and we wonder, wait a minute, let's evaluate our lives let's come are we born again are we regenerate are we living in that trembling kind of situation humble and contrite and trembling at his word speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine now in verse 2 he says this these are the implications of the gospel older men are to be temperate dignified sensible sound in faith in love in perseverance verse 3 says older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may instruct the younger women in sensibility to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be slandered. Now he has a word to younger men as well. Let me just read that for for our good purposes. Here he says in verse 6, Likewise urge the younger men to be sensible, and all things... Titus, you show yourself to be a model of good works with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in word, which is irreproachable, so that the opponent will be put to shame. Again, we saw that these implications of the gospel should be proven in our character, in the way that we think, the, the, our, our thought process, how we evaluate things, how we speak with one another, how we relate to one another. These things are proper for sound doctrine. We want to have sound doctrine. This is the idea of that which is healthy, both in itself, but also health-giving or, or life-giving. These are the commandments in contrast to the commandments of men. If you look back in verse 14 of the previous chapter, not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. That's not sound. That is rotten, uh, corrupt kind of teaching. No, you pay attention to what is good and healthy and that which is uh, reliable, trustworthy kind of word. So he talks about that, the implications of the gospel on older men, first of all, here in verse 2. And you think, well, am I an older man? I'm not going to say. But the, the idea is back in that first century, uh, different people would have different classifications of life. And even in infancy, there's infancy and, and childhood and, and young adult and, and the, the younger person that we'll see here. Then there's the older person, which anybody, uh, some people would say, well, that's uh, any time over... The, 
over the age of 60, and that would be Philo. Uh, he said that was the age, or a man uh, in the, um, they had seven periods of life that, that uh, Philo also talked about, uh, who was quoting Hippocrates. Anyway, so in 50, 56, 60, there's an older man. Now, there's also the aged, that would be the, on the other side of that. We're talking about the, the, the uh, older men here, and those who, if you, if you want to consider yourself, I mean, this is the age where you can identify as whatever you want to identify, right? Don't do that. There are certain realities, facts are, are, are uh, fixed, and so we want to be careful. But he's saying older men are these. You'd think that these would be mature. You'd think that these would be godly people. Now you have to back up and consider the situation. How many believers on the island of Crete had been believers for years? Probably not very many. Now, Paul had been on Crete on his journey. Remember, if you trace your maps in the back, his journey to Rome, his first Roman imprisonment. He was on Crete. I don't think he had opportunity to plant churches on his first visit. But on his second, on his return, he planted all these different churches. The gospel is going forward. Although, if you back up another 30 years, there were Cretans at Pentecost in Acts 2. So was there, were there churches founded back then? I don't know. The point is, older men, those who are uh, aged, those who are advanced in in the you know the the status of the community and respected, hopefully, they need to be temperate. They need to be uh, temperate, not just in alcoholic use. That is a, a literal idea of this of this things. Not given to excess. Not given to these things. But clear-headed and self-controlled, sensible, which is a um, idea here. Oh no, I skipped over dignified. Dignified is the idea of uh, honorable or worthy of esteem or respect. Uh, somebody who is serious but not um, a killjoy or a old fuddy-duddy, you know, that kind of thing. And that's, that's a paraphrase. Uh, but somebody who's worthy of respect. And here this word sensible is used repeatedly throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, what we call the pastoral epistles. But this idea of sensibility is prudence or reasonableness, just thinking through the issues, uh, discernment, uh, just somebody who, who can have a, a proper or mature judgment, sound reason, uh, restraint upon uh, passions and so forth, sound in faith. Notice it says sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. It's very similar to what we read about in Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 13 about faith, hope, and love. Here we see instead of hope, it's endurance. But faith, hope, love is, is celebrated here, and it says to be sound in that, to be uh, celebrated in that, to be healthy, to be a, a proven in regards to these cardinal Christian virtues. Uh, and this, if you don't mind, the faith is that faith toward God, trusting God, uh, being uh, uh, humbly obedient to him. This love that we see here is toward other people. We love other people. We do good toward our neighbor and for one another. And then the perseverance is how do we relate to circumstances or situations. So our, our soundness is in relation to God, to each other, and to just the situations of life. Now, quickly, we move forward to chapter 2 and verse 3. What are older women to be like? Well, likewise. In other words, ditto, whatever he just said to, uh, to the older men, that applies to the older women as well. But even more so, these things, they are to be reverent in their behavior. These are to be, have a demeanor or a uh, inner deportment. It comes from inside, in other words. It's not just an outside-facing thing. It's, it's the internal light of the gospel, if you don't mind, illuminating her heart, her soul, that then works itself out in the way that she interacts with people, the countenance on her, faith, on her face, the words that she speaks. Uh, be reverent, uh, godly, uh, 
God directed in her attitude, in her countenance, to have this uh, expression uh, that, again, comes from within and then bears its fruit outside, that she would be one who is holy or acting in a manner appropriate to God, that she would be even fit for temple service, something that is, that is set apart in that regard for God's service alone. He goes on and says, not malicious gossips. Well, I wasn't malicious when I gossiped about that person. I meant it in all kindness. No, that's not the point. Uh, to gossip is to involve somebody who's not part of the problem or the solution. If you're sharing news about somebody and you're just asking prayer, you need to pray for so-and-so because do you know what's going on? No, don't do that. Uh, don't, the word is diabolical. The word is be like the devil, be an accuser of the brothers or the sisters. To have a slanderous thing, uh, this, is, this is not not an appropriate attitude. In fact, the malicious gossips is it's just that word, to be an accuser, to be one who uses words in a way that is not intended to build up, but really to tear down or maybe to make me look better than them or whatever the reason is. Older women are not to be like that. It says that they are not to be enslaved to much wine. To be enslaved is to be subject to it, to be controlled by it. You know, when can I get the next drink kind of thing? I, I just need this to survive. No, not enslaved to much wine. Now, if you were to read back in 1 Timothy 5, written probably at the same time as Titus, this letter to Titus, Paul said to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. A little wine. Now, without going too deep into it, the wine or the, the grape juice, the very low alcoholic content beverage was really an antiseptic. It was used for medicine. It was also used for drinking. It was used for joy. It was used for sacrifice, also pouring out the wine on a sacrifice. But it is clean water. It's killed all the little floaties that are going on, the little bacteria that are going on in there. So wine is, is good. That's what most people drank. Diluted, right? Not the strong, not the unmixed stuff that we can read about in Scripture. And here he says, hey, don't you women, I mean, you have access to the pantry, you have access to all this stuff, you're the one who procures this stuff. Don't be enslaved to much wine. Don't be given to all this thing. Take a little bit, but not too much. And do, do not become enslaved by it where you think your whole life is, is dependent upon it and you orient your whole life around that. No, you keep self-control, you keep your passions, your, your uh, uh, appetites in check. This last phrase here, teaching what is good, is as Paul does often, he likes to, to bring different words together, different adjectives and nouns, and he likes to build these th new things. And here, this word is used only here in all the New Testament. Not, there's no other use of this in any Greek literature at all, as far as I can tell. If you find one, wonderful. But teaching what is good is a combination of teaching or being a teacher. So you have that idea, and then good. So not just a good teacher, like uh, qualified and competent, that kind of thing, has good students, but one who teaches what is good. The content of the teaching is good stuff, uh, excellent, honoring to God, helpful, advancing lives rather than taking lives or abusing life. It is, again, this healthy kind of teaching. And he has specific content or specific instruction. What is this? What are older women to teach? And even whom are they to teach? Well, in verse 4, he says so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility. The women, older women have a particular focus and attention to the younger women in the church and growing them, teaching them in sensibility that they would have that same attitude or same idea as we saw in verse 2. Older men are to be sensible. Here we see it again in verse 4. They may instruct the young women in sensibility. Verse 5, to be sensible. Uh, verse 6, the younger, women to be, younger men, excuse me, to be sensible. Uh, and then in verse 
12 again, he says, we should live sensibly. So it's the idea of self-controlled, self-restraint. You've got your passions, your appetites in order. You, you are in control of your life. And you teach, older men, you teach these younger women to control themselves. Again, he's telling everybody, older men, older women, younger men. And it seems like we have that issue. We have a problem with our appetites really taking over our lives. And we've got to get them in check. We've got to rein them in. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I buffet, not buffet, buffet my body daily to make it my slave. I don't want to be disqualified through these things. And so to live in sensibility. They need to teach. They need to teach what is good, these women do, but to teach them with sensibility so that they may be, if you don't mind, uh, brought to their senses, not sensuality in terms of living for your passions and appetites, but doing what is wise and appropriate before God that which shows good judgment. This is the primary sphere or, or uh, relationship or responsibility, teaching responsibility of older women to teach the younger women. Now, who are the younger women? Can I be qualified as a younger woman? Well, anybody who is, uh, I don't know, under 50, 40, there's, there's these, and really? That's old from some perspective. No, that's whatever. If you can think in some regards, it's relative. If you can find an older woman who's a year older, a week older, whatever, 10 years, a decade, 50 years older, and you can learn from them in these kinds of things, learn. And if you're a lady in that situation where you can find somebody, anybody who's younger than you, teach them. Teach what is good. Teach them to be sensible. Teach them to live a life that honors the Lord. Well, what are they to teach? Here in verse 4, notice the little colon there. It says this is what they're supposed to teach. Insensibility, of course, but here's some practical implications. To love their husbands, to love their children. We see it again, this repeated refrain. What's the woman's, what is a godly woman's role in society, in the world? Toward her husband, toward her children. If God provides both of these, this is her sphere, this is her orientation, this is her uh, focus, this is her attention gathered to her husband and to her children. Now, notice it says to love their husbands. It's not that one woman has more than one husband. That, that's unheard of, really. We see polygamy, but not, not so much polyandry. Po polygamy means multiple wives. Polyandry means multiple husbands. And we don't really see that in any society. It's very, very rare. There may be some, uh, some societies that have that, but it, predominantly we've never seen polyandry or multiple husbands for a single wife. So this is talking about the multiple women. Hey, whatever your husband is, your one-to-one -one relationship, you make sure that you love your husbands and love your children. Here again is a compound word. Both of these are to love your husbands, to love your children. It's kind of like, you know, you, we know the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia means to love your, your, your brother. Um, we know, what do we know? Philanthropy. Philanthropy means to love other people. Anthropos, to, to, you know, philos and anthropos are put together. Or this word that we saw, when did we see it? I don't remember. Uh, well, maybe when we looked at the qualifications for an elder, right? The love of money, free from the love of, love of money, has to do with the love of literally silver, philagoria, and the love of silver. Or how about this one? This, this might characterize our 21st century age, philautos. Philautos, which is the love of self. I mean, we're just all about me. And what can, what can I do for myself? I just, you know, it's horrible. No, this is somebody who is loving the husband and loving the children. Oriented, thinking, how can I advance my husband? Again, going back to Proverbs 31, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. I mean, these are the kinds of things that she does to honor, to love, to celebrate. Or as Ephesians 5, 33 says, respect your husband. The wife should see to it that she respects her husband. What about the children? 
love the children. Receive them as a gift from the Lord. Receive them uh, with open heart, open hand for God to put and take, if you don't mind, as he sees fit, to love them, to train them, to do as Paul said about Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. He talked about the parentage that Timothy had, and he said, I am convinced of your faith, which first, this is 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5, I am convinced um, of the faith that first, first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I'm convinced that it is in you as well. And even as he said at the end of chapter 3, you, verse 14, you continue in the things you've learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood. This is the idea of not just like a toddler or a, a five-year-old or something, but even from infancy, even from a nursing a child kind of age, you have been... You have known, rather, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You've known the sacred writings. What, are they, what were the sacred writings? The Old Testament. Can you know the gospel through the Old Testament? Yes, absolutely you can. And he was taught by his mother, by his grandmother, loving your children by sharing the truth of God's word with them, disciplining them, training them, giving them instruction in righteousness, all these things to love your children. What goes on here and says they need to be sensible, we're teaching them to be sensible, but they need to be sensible, and so does everybody else. Just getting your life in order, uh, prudent and thoughtful and self-controlled. We see this idea of purity, or one who is holy in a pure sense. So holy conduct, holy life, uh, holy living before God. One who is in, uh, marred with the, the defiling in influences of society. One who's not given to a reading, if you don't mind, step on some toes if you want to pull them back under your chair it's fine uh romance novels and and rom-coms and just wasting your time with that stuff what in the world you are pure how does this advance your godliness what are you doing what are you feeding yourself with okay you may now put your feet back out that's fine but the idea is how are we cultivating purity how are we not just in in action but in in thought we're thinking rightly before god we want to have a purity before god he says here, workers at home, another compound word that just means, hey, spend your energy, spend your, your mental faculties, your mental strength uh, on how can you advance your home? How can you care for this? Remember the picture from Proverbs 31 of uh, she's like merchant ships, bring her food from afar. She makes stuff. She makes her arms strong. Uh, she is uh, working with wool and she's working with flax. She puts her hand to the spindle. She extends her hand and does this. She extends her hand to the poor. I mean, just oriented around her house, working in uh, the home as the primary sphere. It's not to say, again, that women need to stay at home barefoot and pregnant, but they need to be viewing that home life as their primary responsibility and influence. They can go out and do different things in, in the world, as we have seen, but having this primary orientation toward uh, what's going on in the home, working and even... Um, uh, well, he makes a big point, especially in 1 Timothy 5, about widows, those who are unmarried for whatever reason, that use their widowhood, not that they had a bunch of, you know, a cozy life or life insurance or anything, whatever situation it was that allowed them, they used their life in a lazy fashion. They used their life going from house to house. Why are they not in their own home taking care of their children? They're going from house to house. They're gossips. They're busybodies. That's not good. And he says they ought to marry. If they're younger women, they ought to remarry and not give an occasion for the devil to accuse these women of being unsensible. Now, 
all that goes on to say, there's other indications in that same passage about uh, honor a widow who's a widow at Eid, not being less than 60 years old, the husband of one wife. Well, wait a minute. A little bit later, he's going to say the younger widows ought to remarry, but does that disqualify them from, from receiving the benefits of, of the, the widow's list there in First Timothy 5? I don't think so, because it's not, a, a, it's not just married once, but married and committed to that man whom you love, whom you have, have committed your life to, covenant your life to. You love him. And if that means your husband died, or in 1 Corinthians 7 kind of situation, he was an unbeliever and he left, you're not bound in that situation. You can marry again only in the Lord. So the, there's the idea of covenantal faithfulness to the man that the woman is married to at that point. We'll study this more in 1 Corinthians when we get to it. Not anytime soon, but you can read ahead. 1 Corinthians 7. So being, um, let's see, workers at home, kind. This idea of kindness is um, just benevolent. Just somebody who is is so gracious, so generous, extending your hand to the, to the poor back in Proverbs 31, hospitality. Again, hospitality is not just having people in your home. That's part of it, I suppose. But having a hospitable spirit where you are just serving other people. You're meeting other people's needs. You're, con- you're concerned about how can I help this person? How, you know, I can't help them, but I can network them or connect them with somebody else over here. Having that uh, kind-hearted, gentle, concerned about other people attitude. Be kind toward other people. And here again it says, being subject to their own husbands. Notice he doesn't say being subject to any man that she comes across and she just needs to bow down and and do whatever that person. No, subject to your own husbands. You love him. You uh, will honor him, respect in the words of Ephesians 5. You will uh, think of yourself as, um, in the words of Philippians 2, less important. You think of the other person as more important than yourself. You're trying to advance that man. You're trying to make his reputation, his character, you want him to look good when he goes to meet with the elders in the gate. Again, the Proverbs 31 idea. You are subject to your own husband. You want him to advance. You want him to be the, the, the or provide the shade for you, for you as a wife and for the children. You want to uh, cause him to uh, be great. It's not, again, that you need to lay down your life and, and not have an opinion on anything. Yes, dear, whatever you say, dear. No, it, it is something where you work together because doesn't it, didn't we just say that Proverbs 31, whatever verse it says, the heart of her husband trusts in her. Well, how does he know? Why would he trust in her? I mean, she's just a woman after all. No, the heart of her husband trusts in her. There's a relationship. There's a counsel. There's a a confidence. There's a a hashing through, working through issues. It's not that you need to just, whatever you say, dear, I'm not going to say anything against you, honey, uh, your dear husband. No, it's working these things out, uh, but in a submissive kind of way. And it's not even so much Uh, Well, it is this. It's submitting to your husband, but it's the idea of an internal, um, I have submitted myself unto the Lord, right? Aren't women to submit to their husbands? It's this idea, I'm not a raging foolish woman. Uh, The Proverbs would talk about the foolish woman tears down her own house or tears down her house with her own hands. Not that kind of woman. One who is sensible, one who's able to honor in these ways. Notice that... uh, Remember when we started two weeks ago, we talked about the equality between men and women. Like it says in Genesis 1.27, God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created he them. Or it's King James. But uh, in other words, male and female are equal in every way in that context, spiritually, uh, in the image of God. It's not that the men are in the image of God and the women are in the image of man because taken out of man. No, male and female are 
quite able, capable, like Galatians uh, 3 and verse 28 says, there's no slave or free, no uh, Jew or Greek or male or female, but all are one in Christ. Well, that's a paraphrase of that verse. Yes, in relation to the gospel and the provisions of the gospel, yes, man, male and female, boy, girl, can come to the Lord and have salvation just as much as a, a free or a slave or a Jew or a Greek, whether you know ethnic, soci sociological, uh, religious, and sex-based or gender issues as well come to the Lord and can enjoy the fruit of his salvation. But there, is, there are still roles in society, and that is the husband is the head of the wife. First Corinthians 11 is going to teach us that, and other places, Ephesians 5, and the wife is to subject herself to her husband's. Why? What's the big deal? Why can't we just do things our own way? Can't we just be up to, up to date in our modern society? No. Verse 5 ends, so that the word of God will not be slandered. You don't want God's word to be blasphemed. You don't want to cause people to revile God's word and say, oh, this order that God made in, in creation, that means nothing to you, and you can do whatever you want. You're your own person. Uh, you can uh, uh, you know, just be out of control and wild and, and ungrateful and, and selfish. No, the word, of, the word of God is at stake. The honor and integrity of the word of God, as it is spoken, of course, through our lives, but also lived out in our lives. This conduct, as he said uh, in uh, verse 1, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. He talks about conduct, uh, temperament, uh, uh, the ways that we conduct ourselves in this world. We do not want to injure the reputation of God's word. We want to make sure that God's word is not just not slandered, but celebrated and enjoyed and says, yes, this is life. This is freedom. This is you know, fulfilling God's intention for me. And so we want to be very careful in our young women to honor the word of God and to bear fruit for that. We could go on and talk about these younger men, similarly, be sensible in all these different ways. But notice again, at the end of verse 8, it says there's a reason for this, why young men ought to be this way, so that the opponent, who's the opponent? Anybody who's trying to find a way to curse God or, or curse the church or Christians are all hypocrites or I know there's gospel and they know change in your life. No, so the opponent may be put to shame. His mouth will be silenced. He's got nothing to say because there's nothing in our lives that are worthy of accusation. They will have nothing bad to say about us, nothing that will, would uh, bring reproach upon our Lord and Savior. Well, again... We saw a lot of things in relation to women, what they ought to be and how they ought to conduct their lives, particularly in those two main ideas of, of wife and mother. But what about single women and women who have no children? They have no place. Can they, in fact, fulfill God's design for womanhood? And if I were to say no, how many would walk out? Because it's not true. Single women and women with no children can honor the Lord in their womanhood just as well as a, a wife of, of a husband and the mother of many children. Why? Because God is gracious. Because we see him being honored in whatever situation of life that we are in. There can be any number of ways or reasons why uh, there's just not marriage uh, or there just aren't any children. And we want to affirm, if you don't mind, the, the normative, the, the intended um, plan and, and roles for women or husbands, both as husbands and, and providers, protectors, uh, guardians, keepers, uh, all these things for the men, as we looked at earlier, and for the women, how can I, hurt, how can I help and, and serve my husband? How can I help and serve my children? But there are exceptions to these. There are other circ circumstances of life that can uh, 
interfere, I suppose, with the fulfillment of these different things. Well, before we get into this specifically, I want to honor the fact that I know that this is a rather touchy subject and a rather difficult subject. I know that there is uh, a, a singleness of being single, not married, and that's that's been a burden, that's been a grief, wanting, loving, delighting in children, but not being able to bear them. This this issue of, of uh, infertility, it's called, is an issue that affects, by various estimates, up to 10% of couples in America anyway, and who knows what the rates are overall. And so, yeah, this is a real and live issue. And to have uh, those, again, who would love to be married, would love to have children, but it's just not part of their life right now. God has not written that into their story at this juncture of time. What are, how are we to relate to them? How are we to have empathy? Maybe sympathy as well, but at least empathy. We're going to empathize with confusion. I just don't understand. I, I don't know why this is happening or hasn't happened. There, there is, there's a confusion because you see these different prevailing or prevalent idea. I want to be a wife. I want to have children. I can't. I don't at this time. Why? There's a disorientation. And, and you look at other people and you say, well, they have and they have and I don't. And it's just very confusing time. There's a lot of pain that goes along with it, whether physical pain, but definitely emotional thought pain, uh, relational pain sometimes, where there's just a disappointment. There's a frustration even that builds. There is, if you don't mind, a desperation that comes into play where you want and you want and, and you're just, you worked yourself into a frenzy and, and what are you going to do? There's a desperation. It may result in a hopelessness. Again, whether you're uh, a single and wanting a husband or married and wanting children and neither of those are available at, at that time, you come to become, you, you become to be, I should say, um, hopeless or discouraged in these way, different ways. You just lose heart, you say, and, and you just fall into a depression, uh, even de- despondence where nothing's going to work out. I don't think this is ever going to change. I don't see any hope of, of any kind of deliverance of this thing. And, but then you also have an, uh, an anxious kind of situation where, you know, is he the one or is this, is this the time when the child will be uh, conceived or... or just a stress that is placed upon you, not because of external things, it's, it's coming from yourself, which again reminds us the whole idea of being sensible. We've got to control our thoughts. We've got to control our emotions, our, our affections, what's going on in our lives. But anxiety, stress, and pressure come in. There's going to be impatience. You know, I've waited a long time, and you know, I, I'm just, I'm becoming weary, and I can't stand this anymore. And God knows, he, he, you know, he gives me patience, but I'm kind of getting at the end of my, my rope, and I'm ready for God to do something. I'm ready for him to solve my issue. There can be an embarrassment when you come into a, uh, you know, a place where there's just a lot of couples or a place where a lot of children, and just, I don't have a husband. And there's a sense of failure that something I've done wrong. There's a sense of, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I am inadequate. I'm just not able to do it. I can't attract a husband or in the, in the case of a, of a wife, but we're talking from the lady's perspective primarily. There's a sense of deficiency where I am somehow less than. I'm, I'm, I'm less than a woman because I don't have a husband. No, that's not how we should be thinking. There can be a sense of injustice that God has wronged me. This is Job, isn't it? We look back at Job. Why did Job suffer all these things? Because it pleased the Lord. It wasn't because of sin in his life. It was pleasing to the Lord. This is a way that God was working to show himself strong. And even Job says, you're God. I rest in that knowledge. I rest in that uh, truth. And justice that could result even in bitterness toward God, that he he has done me wrong and he continues to do me wrong. And until he does this, I'm going to hold him at at, uh, 
uh, I blame or I'm going to accuse him for these things. No, God always does, does what is right and appropriate. What about peer pressure? And hopefully unintentional, but just looking at yourself, a single woman, and there's all these couples around. Or here, husband and I love each other. We want to have children. We can't at this point and have that comparison. You know, why is it that that person over there gets pregnant every year, good grief, and here I am, not. What is it? And you compare, and so there's that peer pressure. That There's this just a weight that is upon you on these things. There's a sense of loss. Well, you didn't lose anything, but there is a sense of loss. There's a sense of uh, absence. There's a sense of uh, even a desolation that comes upon you that I, I, I'm, I don't have. I don't have what I want. I don't have this, this man in my life, these children in my life. There is real heartache. There's real mourning about these things, you know, M-O-U-R, mourning and grief because you lost your dream. I, I, I hoped, I had, you know, I expected, I had all these things, you know, my, my whole life was planned out and by this age it was going to be this and this and have this and this and then retirement and all this stuff. It's gone. I can't trust in these things. I can't have this. And there, that heartache then translates into an emptiness or um, you know, not being full and a sorrow and even a sense of suffering. This, again, being single or being uh, childless can have all these different thoughts and effect, affections. Just a few more. Again, not to belabor the point or to say, boy, that's really bad, but to say this is what our people are working through and this is what the mindset we need to think as we come in a, in a spirit of help, of succor, again, aid, uh, comfort, encouragement. These are real issues, real emotions, real thoughts and, and uh uh, patterns of thought that we need to enter into and not give, uh, you know, just happy, trite little sayings, you know, just be patient, God will provide a good husband or, or you know, uh, just relax and God will give you kids. He may or he may not, I don't know, but there is a way to please God even in these different situations. Just a few more again. Uh, isolation, where we begin to draw back, we, we feel alienated from other people, so that we actually practice that then. We have a sense of loneliness, but we're, we, we, we can't have these relationships. I can't interact with these couples. I can't or because they're married or I can't interact with that family or these bunch of families because they have kids and I don't. And so we begin to withdraw. That's not good and not, not healthy. There can be a sense of shame that somehow God has found something in my life that is worthy of, of, uh, of bearing guilt and that guilt is, is brought forward by not having a husband or not having children. You can view this as a punishment from God that he is uh, chastening me for no reason. Again, going back to that sense of injustice. And if you don't mind doubting God's goodness and justice, even a lack of faith in God, you think you just need to have faith, just faith, faith, faith. Well, yes, but he doesn't always do what we want him to do. Because I don't know, maybe he's God and we're not. Maybe he knows things. Maybe he, he has a plan that we can't understand at this point. I don't know that we'll ever understand it, but can we trust him? Isn't he good? Isn't he gracious? Isn't he powerful? Yes. Well, focusing, we're going to do it rather quickly, but who is single? In scripture, we see different patterns, different ideas. One of them has more to do with male singles than, than female, but I'll mention it because we'll be look at this text in Matthew 19, and he mentions this particularly. Eunuchs are those who either by uh, physical inability or whatever inability have been eunuchs from birth or those who have made, been made eunuchs by men. We see this in Esther also in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, who is one that was serving in the, in the court and different things, we, we see eunuchs in Scripture. Not so much uh, 
eunuchized females. We don't see that so much. But we see also divorced people, those who are unmarried. In fact, as we look at 1 Corinthians 7, Paul seems to make a distinction between the unmarried and widows. And then again in uh, verse 34, the unmarried and virgins, or in other words, those who have never been married at all. So it seems like unmarried is not a widow. Unmarried is not a single person. Unmarried is a divorced person, somebody whose husband has left for whatever reason. In 1 Corinthians 7, has to do with if your spouse is an unbeliever, let him leave. Uh, you're, not un, you're not bound in that situation. So a divorced person can be a single person. A widow or a, well, again, a widow in a female sense or a widower in the, um, in the male sense whose spouse has died. And there are different instructions we could see. We've talked about some of those already. Uh, that they, in fact, Paul says they should remain. I say to the unmarried and to widows, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, it's good for them if they remain even as I. It seems to be that Paul was either never married or his wife had died. Or possibly his wife had been had left him when he came to faith in the Lord Jesus. But in any event, in any event, any event there we go, he is not married at this point. And he says, if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So he says marriage is, is good, but even better. Remain unmarried. And there are reasons. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians 7, which you can read ahead, basically because of the present distress and in order to focus uh, or to obtain um, sincere focus upon serving the Lord, it's better to remain a single person. There are those who are celibate or as Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 11, I think it is. He says, there are those who are eunuchs from birth, eunuchs made by men, and those who have become eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Those who have committed themselves, I'm not interested in marriage. I'm going to use my singleness to advance the gospel, to advance the, the, uh, the kingdom. And notice he says there, Matthew 19, not everyone can accept this statement about it's better not to marry, but only to those whom, to whom it's given. This is a divine calling. It's given to a few. You should not assume just because you're single that you should remain single the rest of your life. Unless that you're not interested in marriage, if you are content to be single, if you're not given to those those affections that we were talking about, loneliness or desire for companionship, if you are using your singleness as a, as a means to serve others, to serve uh, the church, to serve in your workplace, fantastic. You can use your time, your money, your energy, your relationships even in a way that honors the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 32 to 35 focuses on that idea, that benefit of being single. But what about those who are not yet married? Those who are not committed to a single life going for a long time, want to have uh, a husband, again, focusing particularly from the woman's perspective, are open or even desiring marriage, but they're single simply because it happens. marriage hasn't occurred yet. There hasn't been uh, a guy that has you know, sensibility, hasn't opened his eyes to me yet, for whatever reason. And um, they are using, hopefully using their singleness for a Godly purposes, of course, self-sufficiency, independence, whatever. They could be still living in their parents' home, maybe not. But they are using their singleness not just in an idle fashion or in a selfish fashion, but, but being industrious. Notice that, that singleness is not just a preparation for marriage. No, singleness is a full life right now. You can honor the Lord. You can please God right now. Now, there are things, hopefully, if God does provide a spouse at some future, t future time, that what you do now can be useful in that future uh, situation. But right now, you can cultivate the qualities of, of biblical femininity. You can cultivate the relationships that are going on, uh, you know, godly, uh, uh, peaceful kind of relationships. You can do these things for God's glory. 
Now, there are some maybe some negative reasons, and I'll just quickly mention this, uh, some negative aspects of, of either of thought or of, it's usually self-perception. Uh, and again, we need to be sensible. Younger women need to be sensible, thoughtful, discerning, where there is, um, you know, maybe you have too high a standards. Maybe you're, now you ought to have high standards, not just, oh, he's a Christian, he's so wonderful, and he's cute, and that's it? Really? How about so a little bit higher standards? Does he go to church not just because his grandma takes him, but because he wants to be with God's people? Is he involved? Do other people know him? Is he known in the church? Uh, high standards. But sometimes you can, you can have the idea, ah, there are no suitable men out there. Um, all the good ones are already taken. Really? That's, that can't be true. No. Uh, someone is out there that, that perhaps God has already intended for you. And mathematically speaking, that person is probably already walking on the face of the earth. So pray for that person. God, open that guy's eyes because he is clueless right now. Uh, and, and so anyway, uh, what about a lack of confidence that just, you know, I'm I just, why would anyone want to marry me? And you could say, I'm too skinny, too fat, too young, too old, too different, too short, too tall. Whatever the thing is, I'm too whatever. So nobody will want to marry me. Well, that's not an appropriate way to think. You can find your confirmation in God. You are a godly woman who wants to please the Lord with your life. And so uh, your confidence should be, you know, I'm a godly woman. I want to honor the Lord and God may or may not bring somebody that will see me for who I am and love me for who I am. Maybe there's a fear of competition that you don't want to enter the ring of, of the dating scene or the courtship scene because, you know, I'm a loser. No, I'd want to, no, no one should want me. Well, that's going from no one does want me to no one should want me. Well, that's not proper thinking. Or maybe, well, I don't want to take uh, that man away from that girl because I think they'd be a cute match or whatever. Uh, no, you know, thinking so-and-so deserves a spouse before me. No, you go out there and you be the kind of person that God wants you to be and you live. Maybe there can be a sense of uh, a fear of loss that, you know, if I put my heart out there, then maybe I'll, it'll be cut off or, or, or um, trampled on or, or violated or whatever. And to be motivated out of a sense of fear, that's not so healthy. We can be suspicious of the other person's intentions. Um, I'm going to skip through some of these things. We can be, oh, how about this one? Given to terminal dating. In other words, a serial monogamy going from boy to boy to man to boy to boy to man. There's another man. Just a serial monogamy. You can never settle down. Maybe there's a waiting too long to get married. Maybe my parents' marriage was not good. I don't want anything to do with that. And so, okay, let's deal with that. What is a biblical marriage? What is a godly marriage? And to help uh, have a good view of that, maybe, they, again, they're too high of expectations. For example, suppose you're, uh, you're talking to a, a young lady and then that, and you, you talk to her about a specific thing and then she goes and talks to her girl, lady friends, and she says, he just asked me to meet me for coffee, but I don't think I can marry him yet. <laughs> How about slow down a little bit? Um, or maybe there's, again, an improper view of marriage. I'm not going to be any of my husband's slave. I'm not going to serve him. Um, all kinds of things. There are examples of single women in the scriptures, both unmarried as widows, maybe as divorced or whichever. Uh, but there is, oh, stigma of singleness. That, wait, I thought marriage is the expected state, right? In order to be a godly woman, I've got to be married to a husband and have lots of kids. Well, no, and there can be a stigma even. Well, what's wrong with them? I mean, they, they're so cute and they're so nice and they don't have a husband. Why is that? And so there can be accusations. There can be that stigma, that unnecessary um, thought 
that would be negative toward people. That can be issues with romance, or not just romance, but relationships with men, where there's this friend zone that you're trying to, you're in this kind of uncertain um, situation, non-romantic, but maybe there's sparks are starting to fly and I don't know and there are intentions and and uh, maybe one person is moving faster than the other maybe there's an unwillingness well I can't do this because this isn't appropriate what does that other person want what do I want in this relationship do I just want a companion do I just want um, you know the action uh, in, a, in a dark alley kind of thing or maybe uh, there's there's just I can't commit I can't entrust myself to this person sometimes this can lead to exploitation where you're just uh, using the other person for your own selfish ends. That's not, that's not a godly thing. Um, well, how about some principles here to consider? Some, some ideas. Hey, meet in groups. Avoid the one-on-one or personal or particular or exclusive relationships with, with a man where you're, you're even uh, sharing uh, heart-to-heart conversations at rather vulnerable times in your life, um, whether it be in the, in the circ- circumstance of a day where it's late at night in a dark parking lot and you're just talking your heart out and, and he's listening and he's saying this. Be careful. In fact, Proverbs 4 and verse 23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. When he says heart, it's not just the emotional, you know, the the Valentine's Day heart, uh, the love, the romance. It's the heart, which is the source of volition, affection, thought, discernment, um, self-control, all those things. Guard your heart. Be careful uh, how you do these things. Well, again, very surface level, unfortunately, talking about singleness. What about uh, bearing children and this idea of infertility or uh, barrenness, which is many times found in Scripture, or childlessness? We see the command, of course, Genesis 1 and verse 28, God blessed them, male and female, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that creeps in the earth. Be fruitful, bear fruit and multiply. Become great, he says all over, numerous, all over the earth. Fill the earth and and bring it under your submission. But what about those who are not able to fulfill this command? You told me to bear fruit. Well, I need a husband first. Okay, I got to husband. I don't have kids. I can't do this. God, you you are the one who opens the womb, but you haven't opened ours. How can I fulfill this commandment? How can I fulfill this normative uh, depiction of what a a, uh, woman is to be? Now, Infertility is described, and this is again in the scientific medical kind of literature, it's not just somebody who's been a, a wife and a husband who are not able to have kids after you know, a few months of marriage or, or a few years of marriage. Um, it really has a, a, a specific focus on those who are not able to conceive a child after 12 months of intentionally uh, wanting and desiring children. And again, any, it rates of anywhere from 10% of couples in the States to even 19, 20%. So it's, it's not an uncommon situation. And we can consider that that um, you know some people. Maybe you that they're going through it, but you know somebody who's, who's likely going through this issue. Now, a few things about it, and that is that we have some options to consider. I won't go into all the medical kind of things that could be done because uh, it's really between a husband and a wife what they want to pursue. God has entrusted to humans a certain level of knowledge and skill to do what he said. He commanded in Genesis 1.28 to exercise dominion over things. Not all medical interventions should be forbidden and in terms of uh, um, fertility treatments and so forth. For example, not in a reproductive sense, but in a just a, a physical sense, we do dialysis for kidney failure. That's, that's kind of doing an end run, going around the failing kidneys, and so that's fine. We have eyeglasses, we have hearing aids, we have... Uh, braces on our teeth, we do surgery. So it's not like 
we can't do anything. We're just going to let God control what's going on in the womb. Well, that's good. But maybe you want to take some, maybe you do, maybe you don't, want to take some um, other assistive means to help you to conceive. But you have to ask the question, how, and this is something between the husband and wife, how far are we willing to go to get a baby? How much are we willing to spend? How much are we willing to uh, set our hopes upon these things? How long are we willing to wait in these these uh, situations? Because there are moral implications to the different things that we would could undertake uh, to bear children. Just because it can be attempted doesn't mean it should be attempted. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so uh, having the desire for children is wonderful. That's what Scripture teaches. That's, again, the the... The, the plan, I suppose, that God has for, for men and women. But what about when it doesn't happen? And for redemptive purposes, it doesn't happen. How do you, how do you live? How do you live as a single woman who wants a husband? How do you live as a, as, a, as a good and godly wife who wants children, cannot have them? Well, just a few uh, implications or, or hopefully concluding helpful thoughts. We need to get those thoughts and bring them captive to the obedience of Christ. We need to make sure that we are honoring Christ. He is Lord of my life. He is the one who organizes my days. He is the one who is set, like we read, Ephesians 2.10, where his workmanship created beforehand that we should, or the, with the good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are good works I can do? That is a work I can't do. I can't be a godly wife right now because I have no husband. I can't be a godly mother right now because I have no children. But how can I live to please him? Bring those thoughts together. Be sensible, right? Uh, be discerning. Be uh, trusting the Lord. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, what about this? Uh, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. When you hope and you hope and you hope for a husband, hope and hope for, hope for children, and you don't have it, and there is heart sickness. There is that, that sense of heaviness, all those depressive, anxious thoughts that we talked about. And, oh, so my hope could be realized if my desire were, be to, fulfill, were to be fulfilled. Well, that's not the only way that I, I finally get what I wanted. How about if we cast our cares upon him? How about if we trust in him because he is good, because he is good? God doesn't always take thorns in our flesh away, right? Second Corinthians 11 or 12. Yeah, I always forget where it is. First, second, it's at the end there. And he is able to help us to give grace. In fact, the contribution that Paul gives to that thing, in my weakness, God's strength is made perfect. I don't understand. I want to have this, but you know, God's will be done. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, may your will be done. Not my will. May your will. Not my will. I've got some ideas. God, if you ever want to, want to know what I think, he does want us to know us, we think, but he wants us to trust him. He wants us to rest in that knowledge. We need to realize, hey, God has assigned a certain situation. In this context, of talking about being married or not married or being a slave or being free. As the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. You do what God has, has put on your table or, or set your place with what he's put into your life, you honor the Lord in that, in that way. God has assigned that to you, so it's not like you're left over or you're less than or God has somehow forgotten. No, he has given this. He has assigned this to you. This is your, your mandate. This is your homework. This is what you should work on. And God has called you to himself to fulfill that particular issue or pattern in his life, pattern in your life, rather. And in this manner, do it. Glorify God in your singleness. Glorify God in your lack of children. 
serve God in the situation or from the situation you're in. We can see this that regardless of our marital state, regardless of our child uh, state, we find our identity, find our hope, find our purpose, find our satisfaction, our joy, our happiness in Christ alone. This passage, it's one sentence in the Greek language, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I'm just quoting the verse 3. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with a few, you know, a few. No, every spiritual blessing on earth. No, in the heavenly places. Yeah, but I would, in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ, is given to us. Male, female, old, young, married, unmarried, parent, not parent. We have every blessing. And so we can find our identity in that. This idea was one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Passages really for Luke chapter 1, which you don't have to just read at Christmas time. You can read it other times. The context, the conversation that the angel had with, with Mary. And the idea here is Mary was unmarried. I know she was engaged and so forth. Not, she didn't have any kids. But she was found in favor or to have favor with God. But wait a minute, she's not married. She has no kids. How can she be, how can she fulfill her womanness if she's not those? Because she did, because she was a God, she was a godly woman. Mary was, and Joseph as well. And so the angel says, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And that context about talking about Elizabeth and the wonderful truth that God provides for that. Well, Luke 1, talking about Elizabeth. Last verse here. And this has reference both to, well, every situation of life, whether it's a heart health issue, whether it's a relational issue, whether it's unmarried, un, un, you know, childless couple, whatever the thing is, God, who is in heaven, loves us. Loves us, and he pays attention to us. Here it is, Proverbs, or excuse me, Psalm 147, verses 3 and 4. He, God, is the one who heals the brokenhearted, who binds up their wounds, who counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. You think, what, what's the, what's, how does that relate? He heals up the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds, but then he, in other words, he is small enough, he is near enough, he is imminent to those who are going through horrible horrible circumstances, but trusting their lives to God, who is a gracious, good God, and knows their situation, who is near, who is willing and able to heal them, to restore them, to give them confidence, to live their life, whatever situation in life they're in, to serve him. But he's also huge, and if you don't mind, beyond creation. He counts the number of stars. Yeah, no, there's missing, a couple million missing. Where'd they go? No, he knows everyone. He calls them by name. There's nothing that, that surprises him in all the universe. And so we can, we can find him near enough to our personal situation and we say, wow, God is big enough to manage my life. I can rest in that. I don't understand it. I may never understand it, but I can fall down and worship him. Trust your, God, your good, wise, and sovereign heavenly Father. Let God be God. Rest in his love. Worship him alone. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your kindness, for your faithfulness. We're grateful that we can trust you in the hard, hard issues of life. We, it is hard, and yet you are faithful. We're thankful that your plan is not just a willy-nilly, you know, thrown together, off-the-cuff kind of thing, but you have set this thing in motion from before time began, and we want to be faithful to finish the course, finish what you have entrusted to us. We want to honor you and glorify you. We pray that you'd encourage hearts. Please give hope and help. We pray that you would uh, answer uh, the, the cry, the desire of our, help, of our hearts for your sake, for your glory. Help us to honor you. 
Help us to rest in your goodness, your love, your sovereignty. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.